Acts chapter 17, verses 10 through 15. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. But when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea also, they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren of the, the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there. Now those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible. They left. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we praise you and we give to you all of the honor and glory. We ask that this morning, as your word is considered, that you would bring understanding to our minds. But as Pastor Isaiah prayed also this morning, that you would wound us, Lord. That you would wound us uh, not simply because you are uh, trying to wound us, but that you would help us to grow. The wounding that takes place, Lord, through your word is a pruning process. It is so that we might grow. It is so that we might produce more fruit by your spirit. And so, God, we pray that you would cut us this morning by your words, that we might grow. Help us not to resist your word, but to bow our knee to it. We pray that you would be glorified, Lord, in uh, informing our minds, strengthening our faith in our heart, And God, giving us grace and strength in our hands and feet to obey. I decrease that you may increase. We pray that you are glorified in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. The book of Acts chapter 17, verses 10 through 15. We will be considering mostly just two verses. In this 17th chapter... There are really two episodes that are taking place. There is one episode taking place in Thessalonica, and the other episode that is taking place is in Berea. As we come to the 17th chapter, we're meant to see kind of a contrast between these two episodes that are taking place. And these two episodes, the one in Thessalonica and the one in Berea, They are really a microcosm, and it is a smaller picture of the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Paul goes to a town. Paul preaches the gospel. Paul reasons with those who have questions. Paul is eventually and ultimately challenged, and Paul must move on to the next town. But he doesn't move on without there at least being seeds left that people hold on to and that God causes to grow. In this 17th chapter, Paul has gone to Thessalonica, and he has also gone to Berea. The gospel has been preached in both places, but there are two different responses in both of these places. The Thessalonians, or the Thessalonians, had a far different attitude to the preaching of the word of God than the Bereans. 
Yes, some of the Thessalonians believed. They believed God's word as it was preached by the Apostle Paul. But for the most part, those in Thessalonia had a completely different attitude toward the word of God that was brought to bear upon their minds. They rejected the message of the gospel. They became destructive when the message of the gospel persisted. And they even bordered on insanity because they were so determined to destroy the message that they went and followed Paul to the next town so that they might squash any ability for a seed to grow. In this chapter, verse 5, those in Thessalonica, they resorted to verbal and physical abuse at the hearing of the message of the gospel. In verse 7, they twisted also the truth of the gospel. This mob hated Paul and the message of the gospel so much that they followed him to Berea. Now, it's not like following someone down the street. Berea was 45 miles away on foot. That would be a two-day journey from Thessalonica to Berea. They hated the message of the gospel so much They were so diligent in their opposition that they followed Paul to Berea. Those in Thessalonica were not open to reason. Paul was passionately bringing the word of God to them. And they wanted nothing to do with the word of God. Do you know people like that? You bring them the word and they want absolutely nothing to do with it. They've made up their mind that they will not believe anything that you have to say in relationship to the truth. It's difficult to debate with a person like that, to reason with a person like that, who has, no matter what you say to them, they've already made up their mind that no matter what you say, I'm not going to receive it because my truth is my truth. Or my truth is the truth. Even if it means there is something else that contradicts my truth and makes my truth false. They had already made up their mind. They would not receive anything. No matter what truth Paul brought, they would not receive it. Their hearts were hard toward the truth of God. That's one episode. And then the contrast is the other episode that's taking place in Berea. And the Bible says that they were of a nobler sort. They were noble. They were eager to hear the word of God. They were persistent in the study of God's word. They examined God's word daily. What were they examining, brothers and sisters? Well, they wanted to see if Paul's word was God's word. They wanted to see and search the scriptures. They examined the scriptures to see if Paul's message was God's message. If Paul's message had divine authority or if it was just Paul's message. The only way in which a message has divine authority is if it concurs. If it is in concert with. If it is consistent with the rest of God's word, 
When you hear a message that is consistent with the rest of God's word, it is God's word. If you hear a message that is not consistent with God's word, it's not God's word. Verse 12, let's go back to our text. Therefore, many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women who, women and men. These uh, people from Berea, they determined by the help of the Holy Spirit that what Paul had said was what God had said and they believed. Not only them, but even prominent men and women, Greek men and women, believed as well. They were open to the message. They examined the message, the scriptures for themselves. And when they did so, God worked, wrought truth in their hearts. This passage perfectly demonstrates what it means to affirm the authority of scripture. That is, the implication is that the Bereans were looking into the scriptures because they held the scriptures in high esteem. Meaning this, that they believed that the word of God, the written word, was their final authority. That if God had said it, that settles it, period. No more words to be said. That God's word is the last word. It is that final word after which no other word would be necessary and contrary to which no other word would be believed. We are meant to see a difference between the Thessalonians and the Bereans. Look at verse 11. Now these, the Bereans, were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word of God with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Think about this word noble, brothers and sisters. I wonder if someone would ever describe you or if you would like to be described as noble. Well, tell me about Anthony. What kind of a man is he? Oh, he is a noble man. Tell me a little bit about Rose. What kind of woman is she? Oh, she is a, a noble woman. Where have you heard the word noble before? You, you hear that mostly in, in English, old English kinds of ways, right? It is kind of an old word. It's a person of valor. A person of, of strength, a person of character. We would all love to be described or at least to be associated with the word noble. But the word in this text, noble, is not associated with any kind of ideas of, of the English thought that we might think of when we hear the word noble. Noble here, in reference to the Bereans, means high-minded. Noble here means high-minded or that they were reasonable. Open-minded, they were noble. Why? Because the context is there are those in Thessalonica who are unreasonable. And then the message is brought to the Bereans. And what is their response? They receive it. But not only do they receive it, before they receive it, they examine it. They are open. Yes, bring me the word of God. Let me examine it for myself. And if it is the word of God, I will receive it. Nobility is measured by your willingness to be open 
to examine, and if it is true, to receive. Are you noble? Based upon that definition and description, are you noble? Or are there things that whether they are true or not, you just won't hear them? Luke is writing to, who, who, uh, brothers and sisters, do you know who wrote the book of Acts? Luke. I gave you the answer earlier, didn't I? Do you know who he is writing to in the book of Acts? He's writing to a prominent figure whose name is Theophilus. And Luke refers to him as most excellent Theophilus. He is a man of prominence. He is a man in, in at least a high position. Theophilus is the first audience to this book. He's an elite. And Luke wants to draw this contrast. A Theophilus or most excellent Theophilus, you can be like the Thessalonians, those who reject God's word. Or you can be like the noble Bereans who were open, who examined, and who received. This morning, with God's help, put on your seatbelts, I'd like to give you nine ways in which we can follow the example of the noble Bereans. Now, don't let nine scare you. We are going to walk through these rather quickly. Nine ways that we can be Christians who are like the Bereans. That's our title, Anthony. Christians like the Bereans. Number one, open your Bible. Open your Bible. I'm going to read this one last time, verses 11 and 12, and this will be the the text for each point thereafter. Verse 11 and 12. Now these were more noble-minded than those... In Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. Dear brothers and sisters, have you brought your Bible this morning? I can remember as a young man walking into... That old church there in Oildale. And seeing large Bibles being carried by men and women into worship services. And as the years have gone on, less and less do we see men and women walking into worship services carrying a Bible. It may be on your smartphone, and that's, I guess, acceptable. But are you, the question is, holding high the Scriptures... Are you holding high the only certain rule of faith and obedience? When God's word is preached, do you care to look to God's word to see if what is being preached is actually being said by God? When the word of God is preached, do you just stare here or do you sometimes look there and look here and then look there to make sure that what's being said from here is what is also being said there. When you come to the ministry of the Word, you must make it your task to ensure that what the minister is saying is what God has said. You must vow, and and I encourage you all to make this commitment, never, ever to receive what is being said from a pulpit 
simply because you have a particular friendship or relationship with the one preaching. Or because you believe that they are a likable, charismatic figure. Or because you happen to have so much in common with that particular person. All of those things and so much more, brothers and sisters, is a recipe for disaster. I'll receive it because he said it. No, receive it because God said it. When the man of God stands before you, he must declare God's word. And you must be sure by your examination, by you opening the scriptures, that it is what God has said. In number in Nehemiah 8 and verse 8, the leaders of Israel opened up God's word, read it to the people aloud, and made sense of God's word. And the people received it when they heard God's word with an amen. This is what the man of God does when he stands behind the pulpit before the people of God. He reads the word. And with the help of the Holy Spirit, he gives the people the meaning of God's word. This is why we so strongly believe in expositional preaching. That is when we take a text and seek to give both its theological and its practical meaning. Uh, we exposit. That is, we, we draw out the meaning of a text and give it to the people. And how do you know that the meaning is what God means? We check a text by the text. No, we check the, the translation or the, the meaning of a text by what the text has said. Scriptures, we'll talk about in a moment, will interpret the scriptures. We must be diligent. We must be diligent to be sure that what is being drawn out of the text is consistent with God's word. And what will this require? This will require that when God's word is preached, that you do not sit back. And listen as if this was a movie or some kind of time at a show. Rather than sitting back, you lean in. You lean into the sermon. You lean into the text to see if what God has said or if what the preacher is saying is what God has said. Children, always go back to the Bible and make sure that what that minister is saying is what God has said. One may say, well, that seems rather academic. No, my friend, that is worship. Do not think for one second that just because you're opening the Bible that you are somehow not worshiping God. The greatest things you learn on the Lord's day, the things that make you say, wow, the things that should make you be amazed, should come from the text, should come from God's Word. We, we must not be a people who look forward to the preacher's funny stories. We must not be a people who sit back and wait for the preacher to rant on something that is going on currently in the world. And that's what draws our interest. We must not sit back and wait for the, the preacher's clever one-liners. Ooh, let me remember that one-liner. We must look forward to the Word of God being made plain before the people of God. Open your Bible. Your examination of the Scriptures is evidence that you would like to be not just a faithful Berean, but a faithful Christian. Open your Word. Number two, look into your Word without distraction. 
Again, verse 11 and 12, I'm not going to read it. The Bereans saw the scriptures as something that deserved their undivided attention. They believed that the scriptures deserved their time and their effort. The scriptures say that they examined the scriptures. Do you know uh, what kind of time it takes to examine the scriptures? We must set apart in our lives unhurried time in God's word. Listen to that word again. Unhurried time in God's word. Brothers and sisters, do you open God's word with the idea or the mindset of, I've got to get this in quick because I've got something else to do. Or let me do this real quick because I've got somewhere else to go. If you are going to be a faithful Berean, then you must find time to open God's word. And when you do so, do it with an unhurried attitude. You and I, brothers and sisters, we all have times throughout our day, times that are undistracted. They may be hard moments to find, but they're there. We have them. What do you do with the undistracted moments of your day? Let me ask you this. How will you grow in Christ? How will you grow in holiness? How will you grow in your knowledge and love for God if you never take time to open God's word and look deeper without distraction into what he has said? When the final amen is said on the Lord's day, when will be the next time you open God's word? Let us beware not to rush into the next thing of our lives, especially, brothers and sisters, on the Lord's day. The word of the Lord has been scattered as a seed. And we must not be those of whom the Lord says, and then it's choked by the worries and cares of the world. The word is being thrown out to us. And as soon as we leave, we are so easily distracted by so many other things. What chokes out the word? What chokes out the potential blessings from the word? It is the worries and concerns and the cares of this world. Let me ask you a question, dear ones. What are your plans when you leave this place of worship? May I say to you from the authority of the scriptures, your plan should consist of this. Ready? Worship and rest. Rest and worship. And nothing else. What should my day look like on the Lord's day? Uh, worship and rest. Rest and worship. This is why the day has been given to you. And what a blessing it is, isn't it? It's not meant to steal your joy. It's meant to increase your joy. But for so many, after God's word is preached, we get into our cars and as soon as we turn on the car, we are on our phones. We are checking the, the latest news. We are scrolling through Facebook to see latest posts. We're rushing into other activities. And we have come, we have to come to grips with this. That many of us are consumed with the cares of this world. We are consumed 
with checking these devices to see if there's a new post, if there's any new news, if there's anything being sold that's new. And the sad reality is that we are continually looking to the world to find excitement and joy because we're not finding it in God's Word. If your routines after you leave this Lord's Day service do not involve reflecting again on God's Word, then I would like to encourage you, adjust your routines. Make a tweak. I usually do this and God's not anywhere involved in it. Let me stop that. Talk to your wife about the Word of God that was preached. Talk to your children about the Word of God as it was preached. Go home, look at the text that was preached. Maybe learn more than what was preached to you today. You have a text today, don't you? Acts 17. Maybe you should go home this afternoon and read Acts 17. And it may take you all the way to the book, to the end of the book of Acts. Wow, there's so much going on here. Go deeper. Stay in God's Word. My brothers and sisters, growth in God's Word takes place over a lifetime. That's a long process, isn't it? And because of our fallen state, we have no patience for a lifetime. We have no patience for those virtues that are being developed in us little by little and day by day as we are examining daily and putting forth effort daily. We have no time for that. We would all like to microwave our knowledge and growth in Christ immediately, wouldn't we? Wouldn't we love that? If full maturity in Christ took place by simply microwaving it and happening and it happening all of a sudden, that would be great. But God is a farmer in our lives. I grew up in just down the road from farms. God prunes and then he waits. He waters. Then he waits. He gives light. Then he waits. And all of this is taking place over time. When we come to attend to the worship of God, we must beware of seeking to be stirred, but not changed. We must beware of looking for fix-it-now sermons. Fix-me-now sermons. That's microwave. That's make-it-all-better-right-now kind of sermons. And Christ does not work that way in His people. He takes time to change us. Little by little, season after season. And Pastor Isaiah, in my own mind, as he was talking this morning, he gave this just with his hand. He said, we are going up and going down, but we're still going up. It's, it's this kind of movement in the Christian life. It's this kind of trajectory. And then it'll go down a little bit, but still be rising. It never goes up and then all the way down. It's constantly rising. And then a little bit of a dip. And then constantly coming back up again. And then a little bit of a dip. It's never, as the believer, just crashing. And this takes place slowly, little by little. Thirdly, 
Stay in his word. Uh, thirdly, remain in the word as a way of life. Remain as a way of life. The Bereans examine the scriptures daily. Is there a frequency and consistency to your consumption of the word of God? Is there a frequency, a consistency to the word of God in your life? That's a, that's a wonderful thing that my father taught me. Just by watching my father. My father was consistently up every morning in the kitchen in God's word. Never would I see him not there unless he was just up before me, had already done that, and now he's out into something else. There were, he went to work every single day in the years that I had been around for 34, 33 years, every single day. There's a consistency, though, that must be developed in our lives in order for us to grow. Why did the Bereans search the scriptures every day? They did so because they believed the Bible was relevant. That it would help them to discern truth. And that the result would be a changed life. We have mentioned in a way this already, but is there a daily feasting upon the word of God in your life? Are you daily eating God's word? In Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Deuteronomy chapter 11, we are called to teach this word to our children. Oh, we are called to speak the word when we sit. Speak the word when we walk along the road. Speak the word when we lie down and speak the word when we rise. Brothers and sisters, that is an every aspect of our lives kind of way of living, isn't it? The word of God is there when I walk. It's there when I lie. It's there when I rise. It's all over my life. The word of God must be a part of your life as a way of life. The word of God must be a lamp to your feet as you live in this dark world. The word of God, it must guide your opinions. The word of God, it must guide your ideas. Shape them. The word of God must shape your goals, your affections, your passions, your priorities, your relationships, your parenting, your finances, everything. It shapes your life. When was the last time you consulted God's word on decisions you've made? Do you meditate on the word of God? Is it on your mind at all? When you read through the 119th Psalm, you'll see this consistent kind of a phrase. I will meditate on your law. There is a day and night, a turning to the word of God at all times so that it might guide you home. Is God your light? Is God's word your light? And dear ones, then I urge you, don't shut out the lights. Number four, approach the word of God with eagerness. The approach, the approach of the Bereans was an eager one. And our posture says something about our eagerness to receive God's word, doesn't it? 
And we know this just in everyday kind of conversations with people. There are those people that you speak to that when you see them, you sincerely smile and you're genuinely happy to see them. How are you? Good to see you. And then there are those who, when you see them, you need to take a deep, calming breath because they agitate your very nerves, don't they? There's certain postures that we take with certain people, and it's very easy. What is your posture to the Word of God? When you come to a Lord's Day service, is there an eagerness to be here? Is there a joy to be here? Or is there a, gosh, I've got to be here. And he just said nine points. My goodness, is that going to take us till 1230? What is your posture this morning? Is there an eagerness to the word of God? Or is there an indifference to the word of God? And if you are eager, what advantages are you taking towards your eagerness? Will you come to Sunday school? If you're eager, will you come to the race? Will you come to the women of the word? Will you fellowship with the saints outside of this gathering? Will you read a good book? Are you eager or are you indifferent? One of the the brothers in in the church, I won't say who it is, but one of the brothers in the church recently has really kind of stepped up their family worship and has been reading different commentaries, and their mind has been blown as of late just with the the help of being able to see the Scriptures not just as they are, but in in an even grander way. It's been helpful to him and to his family. And there's an eagerness there now. There's a joy there now as God's Word is helping strengthen not only that priest of his home, but also those who are in his home. Praise be to God for that. Let me say to you, there is not a movement in history, not a movement in the history of revival, no genuine movement of the Spirit of God in the human heart that does not result in a new hunger for the Word of God. Whenever you see the Spirit of of, of God moving in revival, it most assuredly is accompanied by a hunger for God's Word. Has God's Word moved in your heart? You say, yes. Then what should be one of the evidences of that great moving? Oh, I love His Word. I am, as as the psalmist says, I'm like a deer who pants after the water brooks of God. I want Him so desperately. This new heart will begin to feast upon the Word of God. It will be a daily diet for you. You will be eager, looking forward to the time when you can get into His Word. Do you have that? These people are eager for the Word of God preached. Eager to read Christian books. Uh, Eager to dive into the depths of God's will revealed in His Word. Let me say this because I, I can sense it already. I do not say this so that you might feel shame. Not in the least. Listen to me. I say it because it's true. And because it's true, we must therefore ask ourselves and examine, is it true of me? Am I eager for God's word? Do I feast upon God's word daily? And if I don't, then might I encourage you to ask God, to reinvigorate your souls to pursue Him once again. And if you do have an eagerness for the Word of God, then pray that it would not be distracted by the cares of this world. But don't sit here and say, Oh gosh, well maybe I'm not saved. 
Ask the Lord to give you strength. Bring to Him your concerns. Lord, I am not feeling the eagerness that I would know, that I know I should have. Help me. Help me to long for your word. Number five. Look deeper into the word. Look deeper into the word. The Bible says they examine the scriptures. The word examined refers to a legal process. It was a deep, intelligent, detailed investigation of the Holy Scriptures. I'd like you to think for a moment about this. What is a subject? What is an issue? Or what is a matter, all saying the same thing, just in different ways, that you have examined in a detailed manner? Think about that. What subject have you put forth time and effort into so that you might better understand it? Was it learning a new language? You know, when you're learning a new language, you're listening to news in that language, you're reading books in that language, you're trying to communicate with people who speak that language, and you know how difficult it is and how silly sometimes you sound as you're trying to pronounce different words, but you're striving for it. You really want to know it. Learning a new instrument. You ever learned a new instrument? Our brother Isaac is a terrific drummer. It's one of his hidden secrets. How long did it take, I wonder, brother Isaac, for you to be as amazing and awesome and soulful on the drums as you are? How much time and effort? Well, ask his mom. She can tell you how much practice, how much drumming took place, how many times she had to tell him, stop. Stop with the drum pad. Learning a new sport. My niece and nephew are terrific basketball players. How much time it took to learn a left-handed crossover. How much time it took to perfect their shot that they're still perfecting and they still work on every single day. Studying for an examination, our brother Anthony just a few years ago or a year ago or so studied, put forth effort, went to school so that he can be uh, one of those people who does, what is this called? An air conditioning uh, technician expert. We call him Dr. Air Conditioning. How much time did it take for him to go to class, to study, to pass an exam, and then now he is doing his own business, essentially in his own truck, basically? Now ask ourselves this. Have we put in the same kind of effort in knowing God and his word. We live in a world that we know that in order for us to progress in anything, we have to work in order to advance. We know that. We live in a world that we know if I'm going to get ahead, I've got to work, I've got to put in effort, I've got to put in time. But we take a completely different attitude when it comes to our spiritual life. We assume that when we come to our spiritual life, that the Christian, that we just grow by osmosis. Just by being here and hanging around, I will automatically grow. But you haven't taken that attitude, taken that attitude to anything else in your life that you know you need to advance in. My niece and nephew didn't get a good jumper by just watching basketball all the time. They had to go out there and actually do it. 
That is not the kind of spiritual lives that we are called to live. Bereans were examining, searching, investigating the scriptures. They were putting forth maximum effort to know God and his word. What's the most important thing in your life right now? So when we say God, have you put in just as much effort into that relationship as you have with everything else then? There is a unique confidence that one has when he sees something in the scriptures for himself. I know this because I've seen it. I've studied it. I know the word of God for myself. When when we talk about our, our, when we talk to our loved ones and we are able to not just quote our pastor, but quote God's word and make sense of it. There is a confidence in God's word because you have put in the work. You have examined the scriptures. You know them for yourself. Well, my pastor says, what does the Bible say? What has God said in his word? Do you know it for yourself? You've thought through it. You've prayed through it. You've read commentaries. It takes time. It takes willingness to dig deep. But if this is your life, then you must do it. And it's not about being the smartest person in the room. For some, that's their goal. It's vanity. It's about knowing God. Uh, There are times when some blessed individual will come to me and say, I'm amazed by what you were able to pull just from that passage. May I say to you that the information that I often search is at your fingertips as well. I often, actually always, come to a passage unaware of what I'm going to say from that passage. Almost always. Well, how did you get there? Well, dear ones, I examined I read over and over again on many occasions. I didn't just come up with it. Don't think that you're, wow, Pastor Antonio, you were just so smart. I'm not. I worked for it. I examined. I studied daily. When this day is over, Monday is my rest, Tuesday, all the way to Saturday, I'm examining the next text. And here's what we found. What's the point? The point is that digging and examining, the examining and digging that your elders do, is also available for you to dig and examine. Ask your elders, what resources are you using? How did you come to that conclusion? Oftentimes we we laud the meal, but we fail to ask the chef, what ingredients did you use to make that meal? We just say, oh, this is good. And we eat it all and we're gone. I'm often embarrassing When I go to restaurants, because even to my family's house, uh, because if they have the restaurant or at my family's house, which is most often made an especially delicious meal, I usually have to ask them. Now, I, I can taste soy sauce here. I taste vinegar. You put some garlic in here in here, didn't you? Tony and I have this ongoing joke where I'll say something really especially great. I mean, he's a terrific cook. And I'll say, Tony, now, how did you? And he'll just stare at me and gives me a little nod. I'm not telling you. You will get none. of. And so I'll start to rattle off ingredients. You put this in there. You put that in there. Uh-huh, yeah. And although I might have gotten all of the ingredients right, he'll still, and I know he's lying, say, there's other stuff there that, that you don't, you didn't use. Why do I ask for the ingredients? So that I can make it myself. So I can find out how to be a better chef in my home, for my wife and for my children. 
So when the word of God is preached, show me how you got there. Help me so that when I'm studying at home for myself, I can be a better chef for myself and for my family. Help me to study better. It's wonderful when we say that's good. It's even better when we know how to do it ourselves. Six, trust God the Holy Spirit to teach you his word. I said that quickly. Let me say it again. Trust God the Holy Spirit to teach you his word. Someone might say, well, you're a pastor. You've been to school. You're in seminary. It's easy for you. Not at all. I have to read a text five, six times, a book five or six times before I understand. I have to listen to something over and over again to understand. And yes, there are things in the scriptures that are difficult to understand, but we must be diligent to study hard. And we must not think that the word of God is inaccessible to the ordinary person. Don't see yourself as, I'm just an ordinary person. So am I. Be a Berean. Did they have more education than others? No. Maybe they were steeped in the scriptures, maybe from youth. But it was not like these Bereans were somehow educationally more advanced than everyone else. They heard the message. They resolved that they would search the scriptures to examine it for themselves. And they did all of this with the help of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said in John 14, 16, or, uh, yes, I will, be, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever, the spirit of truth. Now listen to what he says. The word cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives in you, oh, lives in you and he will be with you. He is our helper and he is in you. God has given you his spirit. He has given you his spirit so that you might understand his word. He will be your guide. He will be your teacher. He will open your mind so that you will understand things in ways that you've never imagined. Let me say to you slowly, don't give up on studying God's word just because there is a word or a concept that you don't know. I don't know. This is too much for me. This is too hard for me. Don't be the so-called Christian who says, I don't like all these big words. I don't like all these big concepts. I just like it simple. That is frankly lazy and immature. Why do I say something like that? Because we don't live the rest of our lives that way, do we? Everything else is okay to have specific terminology. Except when we come here, we think that Christianity should just consist of three words. God, love, and the word. No other words. If you're saying any other words than that, then you're being too high-minded and I can't go to that church. What's wrong with you? It's perfectly fine for a doctor, for a lawyer, for a scientist, and even athletes to have their own terminology that describes things in their field of expertise. Terminology that belongs to their world, except for Christianity. Stethoscope. Litigation. Intracocosis. The pickle. These words mean nothing to you and me but they mean a whole lot to the people who belong to those particular worlds. All of these are perfectly acceptable in their respective fields. But when it comes to the scriptures, we say, oh, just give me words like love, friend, and God. Or else we will completely shut down and think that we're out of our league. Listen to this word, these words, Bible, Trinity, Incarnation, legalism, the fall, hypostatic union, 
Christology, depravity, eschatology, all words not found in the Bible. All words not found in the Bible, but words that help us to understand the Bible. No, you're not out of your league. They are available for you to know and to understand. Why? Because this is your world. They have words that are a part of their world. This is your world. You are called to another world. And in that world, there are ways to help you understand what God is doing and how God has revealed himself in his word. Therefore, it is your responsibility to understand these things so that you may know God more accurately. Listen to these words from J. Gresham Machem. Listen to these words. I am perfectly ready, indeed, to agree that the Bible and the modern man ought to be brought together. Listen to what he says, though. But what is not always observed is that there are two ways of attaining that end. One way is to bring the Bible down to the level of the modern man. But the other way is to bring the modern man up to the level of the Bible. For my part, I am inclined to advocate the latter, bringing the man of God up. And by I am by no means ready to relinquish the advantages of precise terminology in summarizing Bible truth. Do not feel that just because you hear a word that you have never heard before, that you don't know the meaning of, that you must just throw up your Bible and throw up your hands and say, I'm done with all of this. You need to go find a simpler church. Don't you want to grow? Don't you want to know more than just love, friend, and God? Why does God love you? Why has he called you his friend? Who is God? And when we say, I just can't do it, we are, we are showing that we lack trust in the Holy Spirit, who is our teacher. Yes. Amen. God has given you his spirit to guide you, to teach you, to help you, and to make his word knowable to you. Put in effort. The Bereans had confidence that they could know truth, that they could discern it. Why? Because they belong to God. And God will not leave his people ignorant. He will communicate his truth to his people through his word. He will enlighten your minds as you come to him in faith and exert the energy required to know the scriptures. Number seven, the word will give you understanding and discernment. These are all connected. And you really have to respect the approach of the Bereans. They had zeal. Paul reasoned from the scriptures that Christ would live, die, rise and suffer again or rise again, return again. You and I would accept that truth, wouldn't we? That he lived, that he died, that he rose, that he ascended, that he will return. We, we accept all of that easily. But listen to, my, uh, to me. The Bereans didn't have the full revelation of God. So while we have the New Testament to, uh, to affirm these things that the Bereans were affirming, they did not. All they had was the scriptures of the Old Testament. And therefore, they began to examine the Old Testament in order to see that what Paul had said was so. They hear this message from the Apostle Paul. They go back to the Scriptures. Listen to this. Almost every heresy has been upheld by some kind of Bible verse. But we must not throw up our hands or throw up the white flag just because someone gave us a Bible verse. 
Again, does that explanation of the verse correspond to the rest of scriptures? How will I know if a scripture is consistent with the scriptures? Go to the scriptures. This is called the analogy of faith or analogia fide. It is that perfect interpreter of the scriptures. The scriptures itself. The perfect interpreter of the scriptures is not your favorite preacher. It is the Holy Spirit who has spoken through his word. And if your preacher is accurate, through your preacher as well. You will know the truth by the truth. Don't assume that just because it has been quoted by a scripture that it is absolutely accurate. Find out for yourself. Go to the scriptures. Test according to the scriptures. Number eight, let's move quickly and we'll finish here with one more point. Be humble to receive the word of God. Luke points out that there are high people in social standing that receive the word of God. Again, Luke is writing to most excellent Theophilus. And he is calling him to submit to God's word. This is not the word of men. This is the word of God. John Calvin said, this is the first entrance into the new life that we be willing to follow. And that abandoning the understanding of the flesh, we submit ourselves to Christ by him to be taught and obey him. It is quite likely that our pride keeps us from receiving and obeying the word of God. What's your attitude toward the word of God when it is preached? I spoke to a so-called believer. None of you know him, but all of us were him at one point. And he admitted that he had a hard time submitting to God's word. He realized that through our talks, he had been trying to do things his own way. And that what he needed to do was put down his pride to get out of the way and bow his knee toward God. This was wonderful to hear. I was greatly encouraged by this. And then we came to the doctrine of tithing. And he could not submit to Christ and to his church because he believed that God would understand if he had to pay his bills rather than honor God with a tithe. What did he miss? He missed the fact that he was getting in the way again. He missed what we all miss from one time or another. That we are far too prideful. That we want things to be done our way. Imagine reasoning. God will understand. God has said, here's what you must do. But his reasoning was, but God will understand. As if you, as if you get any kind of special favor from God because, I don't know for, for what. God has said, do it. No ifs, ands, or buts. And if we interject, but God, you understand, then we are getting in the way of God's word. We are standing over it, not under it. Take the Lord's day. And don't we always use this example? And it is because it is one of the great ways to externally examine how much of our lives belong to Christ. He has said, give me the day. And we said, I'll give you a few hours in the morning. And isn't that representative of the portion of our hearts that belong to him in secret? I'll give you this much of me, Lord, but all of it? 
We must stand under God's word. We must be humble when we come to his word. We must be lowly in spirit. We must come prostrate before God and say, all that I am is found in you. Number nine and, and close. The word of God then has the final word on all matters of faith and practice. Who has the final word in your life? When there is a matter to be discussed or determined, who has the final word in your life? Why did the Bereans go to the scriptures? Because the scriptures had the final word. Who has the final say in matters in your life of faith and practice? Is it your feelings? Do your feelings have the final say? Is it your instincts? Oh, my instincts never lead me wrong. Is it your pastor? Your parents? The government? Our confession says the supreme judge, uh, paragraph, uh, chapter 1, paragraph 10, the supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined. And all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, and private spirits are to be examined. And in whose sentence we are to rest can be no other but the holy scriptures delivered by the spirit into which, into which scriptures so delivered out of faith, out faith is finally, our faith is finally resolved. Meaning this, the word of God has the final authority. Not a confession, not a creed, not a man, not a woman, not a government. The word of God has the final say in our lives. The Bible is never wrong in what it affirms. On everything that it speaks about, it must be given the final word. If we were preaching, we must go to the word as the final word. Dear brothers and sisters, I pray that the Lord will help all of us to put all of these different points into practice. That we might be better men and women and children of the book. That we might follow the example of the Bereans and be faithful in our dedication to God's word. Let's stand and pray.